quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. It is a very busy morning. A lot developed overnight. New overnight mass missile strikes across Ukraine. Civilians reported dead. Energy infrastructure severely damaged. We are live in Kyiv with the fallout. Also overnight, Senator Mitch McConnell hospitalized after a trip and a fall. What we're learning about his condition. The death toll rising in California. The historic snowstorm blamed for more bodies being found. And now a new warning to residents, prepare for floods. An NBA legend arrested, Sean Kemp, charged in connection with a drive-by shooting, what police say happened. And President Biden going big, seeking to cut the deficit by nearly $3 trillion. Details on his plan to do it, why Republicans say it'll never happen. CNN This Morning starts right now. We do begin this morning with the war in Ukraine. Russia launching a barrage of missiles overnight across Ukraine. Power knocked out. Innocent civilians killed. It is the largest scale bombardment we have seen in nearly a month. The Russians struck several major cities, including the capital, Kyiv, far away from the front lines. Ukrainian officials say a Russian missile obliterated these homes and killed at least five people in the western city of Lviv, which is right on NATO's doorstep. This is a photo of Russian missiles rising up into the sky. In the pre-dawn hours, Ukraine's military says Russia launched more than 80 missiles in all. And Europe's largest nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia has been completely disconnected now from Ukraine's power grid because of that Russian shelling. That's according to the energy company that runs it. So we do begin with our Ivan Watson. He is live on the ground in Kyiv. Just a barrage overnight and so far west. What can you tell us? Good morning, Poppy. And according to the Ukrainian uh, military command, this was a massive missile attack on Ukraine's critical infrastructure. And I'm just going to give you a little uh, image of some of the consequences of this. The security source in Ukraine says that this was a piece of a missile that burned out these cars. Uh, It hit around six o'clock this morning before dawn and would have been absolutely terrifying the blast for uh, residents of this enormous apartment block up here. There's shattered windows and things like that. This is 
is just one of the impact points. Uh, it does appear, judging by what the Ukrainian military has said, that this was a coordinated Russian uh, missile attack. At least 81 missiles of different kinds, cruise missiles, air-launched missiles, uh, uh, sea-launched missiles as well, uh, those uh, Iranian-made Shahid drones that hit in cities from uh, Kiev here, the capital, to Lviv in the west, where at least five people were reported killed, uh, the southern city of Odessa, uh, the northern uh, city of Kharkiv, and that the uh, power infrastructure appears to have been one of the targets of these strikes. And that is uh, a trend that we have seen for months now, with Russia apparently trying to knock out power uh, in this country. And 15 percent of power was, for example, knocked out here in Kiev. Uh, in uh, another town, Zhitomir, about 150,000 people without electricity. But I can just describe to you, traveling around Kiev today, it's business as usual. Uh, the restaurants are open, businesses are open as well. But I think what we see here just underscores how haphazard and dangerous and scary uh, it is when uh, the Russians fire these missiles. Uh, Tom's just going to spin around over here real fast. I mean, there's a, there's a children's playground right here. Fortunately, no kids would have been here at 6 o'clock in the morning. The Ukrainian military says that they were able to use their air defense to knock down at least 34 of the cruise missiles and four of those uh, Iranian-made Shahid uh, so-called suicide drones. Uh, but take a listen to what a spokesperson for uh, Ukraine's Air Force has to say about the vulnerability they have to some of these Russian missiles. As you can see, the attack is really large scale and for the first time using such different types of missiles. We see that this time as many as six Kinzhal were used. This is an attack like I don't remember seeing before. Different types of aircraft were used, strategic, long range, MiG-31. There were 81 missile launches. There were X-22, which we can't shoot down. We can't shoot down the Kinzhal either. Uh, as he says, they have no defenses against some of these uh, Russian missiles. Back to you, Poppy. Ivan, before you go, I mean, it, we just heard from the director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, testifying before Congress yesterday, talking about uh, real concerns about Russia unlikely to make major gains, but to continue this war of attrition, to continue killing civilians, to continue trying to make this impossible for Ukraine to live through, and also real concerns about, you know, Ukraine's efforts in a counteroffensive. And it's, you're seeing that play out on the ground right now. Yeah, I mean, well, let's just consider this this missile barrage. What does it accomplish? Mm -hmm. The power is still on in much of Ukraine. This is just the most recent of uh, a series of these kind of missile attacks. To, so what does it really accomplish? It, it you know, keeps the air defenses active. Uh, it definitely terrifies local people. I was talking to an, an elderly lady who walked past and she, she said, I have no words for how frightening it was at six o'clock in the morning when uh, this missile part smashed down here. Uh, uh, but to date, the, the Russian military has not been able to knock out the electricity in Ukraine. Despite the scale of the destruction and the battle that's been going on, they have not succeeded in this, though they try again and again and again. I leave that to you to judge how effective this strategy is, unless it is to uh, terrify the terrorize. population and try to hobble the economy here. Yeah, terrify and terrorize. And it's so striking to see you right uh, in front of the children's playground there where it's all playing out. Ivan, thank you for the reporting. 
Joining us now this morning, senior military analyst and former member of the Joint Staff at the Pentagon, retired Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, Colonel, thank you for joining us this morning. Let's talk about the scale of this attack. It really spans the full interior of Ukraine. Talk about uh, where these strikes hit and why Russia chose these particular targets. Yeah, Don, good morning. Well, uh, you know, as Ivan mentioned in his report, it really struck all across Ukraine. And you can see from the west in Lviv all the way to the northeast in Kharkiv and then down south in Odessa, uh, plus, of course, the capital in Kiev. Uh, all of these areas are critical to Ukraine from an economic standpoint. Uh, many of them do not have military installations, but the very fact that they're being hit uh, indicates that the Russian strategy is one in which they're going after all the different different civilian infrastructure installations that they can hit. Uh, you know, the key fact, of course, they're going after power. Uh, not very effective, as Ivan mentioned, in, you know, in the aggregate, but it's still, uh, you know, at the very least an inconvenience and, of course, can be a fatal inconvenience uh, when uh, these missiles strike in, a, in apartment areas and uh, in other ha inhabited areas. Well, let's talk about Lviv. I remember being there, and Lviv was seen to be as, you know, a safe space here. This is one of the five areas there. So this is a residential area, thought to be a safe space. Why why would Russia strike there? So the reason for that, Don, besides spreading terror and really indicating to Ukrainians that there is no safe haven, uh, notice how close Lviv is to the Polish border. Uh, Lviv is the main supply route in for a lot of the weapons that NATO and the U.S. Uh, are supplying to the Ukrainians. Uh, so it's a warning in some respects to Ukraine that their supply chain can be hit uh, by the Russians. And uh, Lviv, of course, is right smack in the middle of that. All right, let's look at now the Zaporizhia nuclear uh, power plant, the state of emergency. Uh, this, this company says that the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has once again been completely disconnected. It's an emergency for them. It's been disconnected from the Ukrainian power grid due to Russian shelling. That continues to be a major concern here. Yeah, it sure does, Don. And of course, you know, if uh, there is no power to the nuclear power plant, that limits the ability and actually makes it impossible to cool the reactor. Uh, so if the reactor is not cooled, then uh, the possibility exists of a, a nuclear accident uh, of one type or another. And, you know, to use the term accident is probably overstating things, but uh, it is definitely uh, a serious concern and could result in some radiation uh, leaving the area kind of like Fukushima uh, in, uh, in Japan uh, a few years ago. This isn't your expertise. We've been discussing, you and I, uh, and you with other members of our network have been talking about the, the, the types of weapons that Russia is using here in these strikes, including uh, cruise missiles, anti-aircraft missiles. What do you know about it? Yeah, so there are a lot of different weapon systems, as the Ukrainian spokesman mentioned. Uh, there are a lot of them. So let's uh, look into a, a couple of these, the X-22 air launch cruise missile. This is something that is designed by the Russians to go after ships. Uh, this is something that is not designed to attack civilian targets. It is not designed to even attack formations on the ground. Uh, but that is, you know, one of the key things. And then right under that, the X-47 Kinshal, that's an air launch cruise missile. Uh, it is a hyper sonic missile can travel up to 12 times the speed of sound. Uh, and it is also, uh, actually both of these missiles are actually nuclear capable. Now they don't have nuclear warheads in this case, uh, but uh, the conventional warheads have caused a lot of damage and the Ukrainians have no air defenses against them. All right, Colonel Cedric Layton, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Later on in the show, we're going to speak with the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House, and that is none other than John Kirby.
Also overnight, we're tracking breaking news out of Washington after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been hospitalized after he tripped and fell at a hotel in Washington. I want to bring in our CNN congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox. Lauren, what do we know, what do we not know from McConnell's team so far about what happened? Yeah, what we know at this moment, Caitlin, is that he did suffer a fall at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel following a private dinner. I want to read this statement from his office saying this evening, Leader McConnell tripped at a local hotel during a private dinner. He has been admitted to the hospital where he is receiving treatment. Now, McConnell is 81 years old. He's the top Republican in the U.S. Senate and the longest serving Republican leader in that body. But there's just a lot we don't know right now about his condition, about how long he'll have to be at the hospital. It also comes at a time, Caitlin, when the Senate is narrowly divided right now. And there are two Democratic senators who are also out for health reasons. You have Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is dealing with shingles. You also have uh, Senator John Fetterman, the Pennsylvania Democrat, who is receiving treatment for clinical depression at Walter Reed right now. So, you know, there's just a lot of questions. I will keep you updated as we get more information this morning. But right now, what we know is that McConnell suffered a fall last night and was hospitalized after that fall. Yeah, Caitlin. he's obviously in our thoughts. We're hoping uh, for a quick recovery for him. But Lauren, in the broader impact of what this means, you know, we've had these conversations when Senator Fetterman was hospitalized, Senator Feinstein. What does it mean for Senate leadership given, you know, if he does need quite some time to recover? Well, I think there's just a lot we don't know right now, but obviously it's a narrowly divided body. It is a body in which McConnell has a lot of jurisdiction over his conference. He is somebody who is revered within his conference, trusted, someone that lawmakers go to for advice, someone who decides the Republican strategy in the U.S. Senate. So obviously his absence for any period of time will have an impact on the Republican conference. Of course, you also have Senator John Thune, who is the next in line. He is the Republican whip who, you know, would be expected to fill that vacuum. But we just don't know right now how long McConnell would be hospitalized for and how serious of a fall this was. Caitlin. All right, Lauren Fox, keep us updated. Thank you so much. I want to bring in CNN's political commentator, Errol Lewis, for more on this. Errol, obviously, we are we don't know a lot. We're hoping to learn more and we're you know wishing for the best for Senator McConnell. But this does have a significant impact potentially on how things work in Washington for any senator, but especially one as powerful in his caucus as Mitch McConnell. Oh, for sure. Uh, we should keep in mind that it is still a closely divided Senate. We had the vice president come in and break some ties on judicial nominations of no particular moment. Um, that's how closely uh, we, we still have to keep in mind. 5149 is nothing to sneeze at, and all it takes is one or two to be incapacitated or not in the chamber, and all of a sudden a lot of things can change. But I think your larger point, the, 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 the interesting thing about uh, McConnell is that we don't know where the Senate would go without him. He's, you know, he's the longest serving Republican leader in history. And where they might go, you look at somebody like Senator Rick Scott, who made an abortive challenge to maybe take the leadership away. And he put forward some policies that were dramatically unpopular and was sort of shunted aside and so forth. But we don't know where that conference would go without the leadership of Mitch McConnell. We may find out, find out in the next few weeks. Is there, oh, sorry, go Is there anything that they're working on now that would be in jeopardy because of a Mitch McConnell absence that is of, of critical importance at this moment? I, I think, I think of, you know, broadly speaking, trying to figure out what the strategy is going to be. I mean, you know, Senator Biden, uh, I mean, I should say President Biden, is, uh, is, is putting together 
and getting ready to announce he's making a speech today that is going to really, I think, sort of uh, lay the groundwork, set the table for an, an announcement for president. Where are the Republicans going to go? What's yeah. their answer going to be? There's a, a relative amount of chaos over on the House side. And so you would try and look to the Senate. What are the policies that we're going to pick on? Again, uh, you know, S Senator Scott talks about, you know, budget deficit reduction, and it's straight into maybe we need to cut Medicare, maybe we need to cut Social Security, third rail in politics, a, a disaster, sort of swept aside. Where do they go now? We don't know. Yeah, I just was going to say, I mean, obviously we know the longest serving, you know, Senate Republican leader in history, but also an important voice this week following that Fox News report trying to whitewash January 6th, what he came out, what he said. Uh, just, you know, thinking about that in the context of sure. where I mean, he this, is now. This is what the Senate is, and this is what the Senate is supposed to be. You know, look, the, the median age in the U.S. Senate is close to 65. There are a lot of older members there, but they represent an institute, you know, whatever their politics, they represent sort of institutional continuity, uh, a sort of uh, a way of cooling off some of the passions that are dividing the, the, the nation and so forth. And we already saw just a little bit of that. You know, the, the whole question of trying to relitigate January 6th and this attack, you know, you're relying on elders like Mitch McConnell to say, again, even if you don't like his politics, to stand up and say, no, that was a disaster. That was something where we're going to stick to the facts. We're not going to see a repeat of this. We have to safeguard uh, the institutions of the country. Yeah. And you're right. He's saying that what it was it was critical what he what Mitch McConnell said that he's standing by police yeah, and the police it. assessment and, and rather than the Fox News assessment in front of the cameras. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite outspoken. And there's still a lot we don't know. He was at the Capitol until late last night because they were turning overturning that D.C. crime bill that was passed. We know they were working till late in the evening. We're waiting to learn more. Earl Lewis, stay with us because we want to bring you back to talk about more news that has been happening. There's so much breaking overnight. Coming up, the Louisville Police Department routinely used, quote, unreasonable tactics, including unjustified neck restraints, police dogs, and tasers. That is all according to a scathing new report from the Justice Department. We're going to tell you more of what this investigation found. Plus, former NBA star Sean Kemp arrested in connection with a drive-by shooting incident. We're going to have details straight ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break. This just in, South Korea says North Korea fired one short-range ballistic missile this morning from the Nampo area toward the water off the coast of the Korean Peninsula. This was fired toward the Yellow Sea between the Korean Peninsula and China. It happened around 6.20 p.m. local time. South Korea says it's working closely with the United States, trying to strengthen surveillance and, of course, vigilance. We'll keep you posted. A new Justice Department report issuing a scathing rebuke of the Louisville Police Department three years after the botched raid that killed Breonna Taylor. It paints a portrait of routinely racist and abusive conduct that violates citizens' constitutional rights, particularly black Americans. Some officers have demonstrated disrespect for the people they are sworn to protect. Some have videotaped themselves throwing drinks at pedestrians from their cars, insulted people with disabilities, and called black people monkeys, animal, and boy. It is a scathing report. Seen as Ryan Young live for us in Atlanta with more. Ryan, good morning to you. It's also, I good mean, morning, a, a fulsome, long report. Um, that he laid out and the specifics that he talked about, calling people monkeys and outside of their name. What's the, res what's the response been like? 
Don, that's one of the things that stands out to me. If you think about it, we're saying out loud that a report says that officers videotape themselves calling black people monkey and boy. And when you put this all together in this report, it now shows you what some citizens have been telling us for quite some time in that area, that they don't feel like they're respected by the police department. It goes on to say that, and it talks about the fact of a lack of leadership and the fact that a lot of times officers weren't held accountable for some of their actions. We should put on the screen for you some of the things that this report also highlighted, because what we do know now is there was also a use of excessive force, unjustified neck restraints, unreasonable use of police dogs, tasers, and searches based on invalid warrants. One of the things that stands out to us about the warrants is, in this report it says sometimes when they showed up to private homes, they did not always knock and identify themselves as police officers. Obviously that stands out to us. And then you can see it discriminates against people with disabilities. And as you talk to people in the black community, they say for a long time, when they had issues with this police department in particular, they had no one to go to as they were complaining to city hall and community leaders about changing things within the police force. We now know this report is scathing and there are people on ground who are hoping things change pretty quickly. Don? Brianna Taylor's family, what are they saying about these findings? Yeah, you could obviously understand why they would be in shock and disbelief about this. They are happy to have this report, obviously, but when you see the carnage that this has created, the demonstrations that were there, and the fact they lost a loved one, you can understand the pain in the mother's voice. Take a listen. It's heartbreaking to know that everything you've been saying from day one has to be said again um, through this manner, you know, it, that it took this to even have somebody look into this department yeah, Don, obviously the Justice Department has drilled down on this. Now it's probably time for the community and reporters, quite honestly, to go in and drill on what's going on in that police department right now and what changes will be made for that community. All right. Ryan Young, thank you very much for that. We appreciate it. All right. So Erolos is back with us. Uh, reading through this, is just, a 90-page report is just stunning because of what seems to me like the lack of change and lack of accountability that happened even after Breonna Taylor was killed. We heard her mother say yesterday, it will not be in vain. But a few months after she was killed in 2020, the mayor of Louisville told me this is a time for change and it will happen. Did it happen in the city? Look, this is a country that went through a tremendous trauma in 2020 over exactly these kinds of issues. Remember those historic uh, George Floyd uh, killing protests? Um, and there were a lot of different departments that made a lot of changes, some big, some small. This tool, the outside look by the federal justice department, uh, the, the consent decrees that yep. make departments change in Cleveland and New Orleans and all over the country, this is an essential tool. And it really sort of shows that departments cannot just reform themselves, even with the best of intentions, even with the prettiest words from the mayor or the local elected leadership. It really does take uh, outside force. There are 18,000 police departments in this country. Each of them has their own sort of uh, dynamic the bias that shot through so many of them, especially in some of the big cities. It really is incumbent on, I think, Congress, frankly, uh, to put something in place that's a little bit more permanent because what's done by a Justice Department can be undone by the next one. Remember, during the Trump administration, yep. uh, these Consent That's decrees, right. these outside looks, is one of the first things Under that they Jeff did. Under Jeff Sessions. Under Jeff Sessions, one of the first things they did was remove them and announce that it was bad policy and that yeah. they weren't going to do it anymore. You know, arguably, that sort of sets the stage for a dysfunctional department they like Louisville. They also only happen, guys, after something bad happens. Yeah. But this is, look, I think you bring up a very good point, which I want to move, because this, this is way beyond Louisville, and it's beyond Memphis. 
and it's beyond Minneapolis, mm -hmm. and it's beyond Ferguson, yeah. right? It, but it, it is the entire country. In 2020, it was in front of us. We had three very high-profile cases that we can remember at this point. We had Breonna Taylor, we had Ahmaud Arbery, and we had George Floyd, mm -hmm. all in our faces, in the, right in the middle of COVID. And I remember writing about this, and, and what stuck out to me is that as I spoke to experts who talked about the history of policing in this country and the patience that people of color have had with people saying, go slow. And one expert that I wrote in my book says, from the beginning, police as we know it has not been about maintaining public safety, but about maintaining public order. And with that comes militarized police departments and, a police, and police officers who feel, as you see in Memphis with these units, as you saw in, in Louisville, that basically they can do anything, especially to people who have no power. That's right. I mean, we, we know that the scrutiny has never been there the way it's supposed to. I mean, you know, one fact that always bowls me over in the 1994 crime bill, going all the way back to 1994, there's a provision that says we must get an annual report through the Justice Department from local departments about how many people have been killed by the police. It's never been enforced. So, you know, year after year after year since 1994 and even now, it's, you know, it's the Washington Post or it's the Guardian, it's media organizations, it's activists who are out there piecing together uh, bits of local news that they pick up by scanning Google or something uh, to try and figure out just where we are right now. The fact that the, the, the country hasn't really sort of figured out how to be serious about this in an institutionalized, sustained way. It's okay to go out and protest. It's okay to sort of make some changes, name a black police chief. That's another big strategy. If you look city by city, you see, gee, there'll seem to be a lot of black police chiefs out there. Isn't that great? It doesn't seem to have moved the needle in too many cases. Yeah, yeah. and such a good point. I mean, this is likely not the last report because the Justice Department is investigating discriminatory practices in several other well, Memphis, major cities. It's the main one that's starting now. It's yeah. the next one. Very similar thing that the Justice Department is doing. Yeah. 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 Great questions. Great commentary. Errol Lewis, thank you for that. Thanks. Also this morning, the state of California has cut ties with Walgreens over access to an abortion pill. We're going to tell you how much the pharmacy chain is just about to lose. And speaking of what's happening in Washington, especially with Mitch McConnell now um, out for health reasons, we're going to go live to Washington where the White House, the president is, President Biden is about to unveil his plan to reduce the federal deficit by nearly $3 trillion. How Republicans are likely to respond to that. It's coming up. California is, quote, done with Walgreens. That's according to Governor Gavin Newsom, who announced that the company, after the company would not, said it would not dispense abortion medication in 21 Republican-dominated states. Newsom's office now says California is not going to renew a $54 million contract with the company. It was set to take effect in just May. CNN's Camilla Bernal has more. California's Governor Gavin Newsom is declining to renew a $54 million contract with Walgreens after it capitulated to 21 states attorneys general warning the retail pharmacy to discontinue mailing abortion medication to their states. Newsom tweeting, we're done. We're serious about not investing in companies that cave to the extremist agenda of the GOP. The governor seems to be ideologically shutting off Walgreens because they're not following his pretty extreme views on abortion medication. It's really beyond the pale. In a statement, the nationwide chain writing they are deeply disappointed in California's decision and said the decision not to renew was made off of false and misleading information.
to say because of politics in some states, we're going to now deny basic health care to women is shameful. And I think that for, Cal for the state of California to put our purchasing dollars where our values are is completely appropriate. Abortion medication is used in more than half of all procedures nationwide. California's decision comes at an already tense time as a Texas judge will be deciding whether to outright ban the abortion medication methoprestone. The 21 attorneys general are arguing that mailing drugs like methoprestone violates the 1873 federal law, the Comstock Act, that prohibits sending anything pertaining to abortions through U.S. mail. In four of those states, Kansas, Iowa, Montana, and Alaska, abortion medication is legal. Earlier this week, Walgreens wrote they plan to dispense methoprestone in any jurisdiction where it's legally permissible to do so. Despite this statement, the backlash has been swift for the company. In Chicago, protesters flooded the streets outside of Walgreens to mark International Women's Day. It is unacceptable for women to be left at the mercy of a patchwork of state laws governing their ability to access reproductive care. And where it stands today, this multi-million dollar contract with Walgreens provides medication to inmates in California's correctional system. So by not renewing this contract, the state is essentially showing where it stands when it comes to abortion and abortion medication. And the governor saying he's not afraid of using the state's economic power to show where they stand because California, he says, is on track to become the fourth largest economy in the world. So the money here in California could make a difference. Caitlin. Absolutely. Camilla Bernal in Los Angeles. Thank you so much. I want to bring in now CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. Good morning to Good morning. you. So basically, Newsom is saying to Walgreens, we are done. But yep. this has ramifications really beyond California. It does. And he's really highlighting this. He's saying that they're taking a stand against corporations who cave, cave to extremists and cut off uh, critical access for women. That's where uh, Walgreens stands on, or that's where uh, California stands on this. But this is bigger than California because you have these 21 states here um, that are uh, pressuring this company and other companies about sending this drug to their states. And uh, Walgreens says it's being unfairly singled out here. But all of the drugstore chains are very closely watching these legal developments uh, and considering what they're going to have to do about this also. Can you explain? I, I don't, it's certainly not clear to me. I think it's not clear to a lot of folks because Walgreens said in Camilla's piece, You've got it wrong. You misunderstand what we're doing, Governor. What is Walgreens doing vis-a-vis -vis California and other states and this pill? So it's not about California. It's about other states where these state attorney generals, 21 state attorney generals, wrote a letter to Walgreens and said, we do not want you to send this drug into our state. Even a couple of states where medication abortion is still legal and accessible, but you have uh, conservative lawmakers who are suing to overturn it, right? So there are legal challenges. There's also a legal challenge from Texas, right, about whether the FDA can actually author. For 20 years, this, this, two, uh, this pair of drugs has been, uh, has been accessible and authorized by the FDA for, for 20 years. And that now is the subject of a lawsuit, which means these companies, 
these drugstore companies could be in the middle of a situation where the FDA is fighting for its right to be able to authorize these drugs in the first place. So it's a mess. After Roe v. Wade was overturned, it opened up this whole can of worms here, worms here for medication abortion, which these companies provide the drugs As for. That said, there is no constitutional, that court said there's no constitutional right to this anymore. Yeah. And, and on every level, that has an impact. And there is a very aggressive campaign by some of these lawmakers in some of these states to go further, to go further than just the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but to make this medication abortion, which the majority of abortions are medication abortions in this country, to make sure that is not accessible. Right. These companies have found themselves in the middle of it. It was a place they do not want to be, I will tell you. None of them want to be in the middle of what is a fraught political and legal fight over the access to this medicine. Christine Romans, thank you very much. You're welcome. It. A today, President Biden will release his annual budget proposal. It's expected to map out how he plans to reduce the federal deficit by $3 trillion. That's what the administration says. Let's turn to senior White House correspondent MJ Lee. Taxes, taxes, taxes. That's how you do it. Yeah, exactly, Poppy. You know, we are waiting on the full details to be released later today, but we already know some of the major components of President Biden's budget that is coming. We know, for example, that he is going to call on cutting the deficit by some $3 trillion. This is in part notable because recently he had been talking about that dollar figure being more like $2 trillion. So this is a lot more uh, aggressive than what he had been talking about. We also know that he wants those cuts to come from, in part, taxes, as you said, on high earners and large corporations. He did say no tax increases on anybody making less than $400,000 a year. We also know that he wants to allow Medicare to negotiate prices on more drug prices. He says deficit reductions that would come from that would be put right back into the Medicare program. We also learned overnight that he wants to boost federal funding for child care and early education, including free preschool for all four-year-olds around the country and expanding tax credits for businesses that do uh, provide child care for their workers. Now, if all of these ideas sound pretty familiar, uh, that is because these are some of the top domestic priorities that we have heard the president talking about over the last two years. So really, this is a budget document, but it also is a blueprint of some of the president's top priorities and agenda items, Poppy. And Phil, uh, MJ, our colleague Phil also sat down with the head of the Office of Management and Budget OMB, uh, Shalanda Young, and asked about the deficit reduction part of all of this. Let's listen to that exchange. But I think what I'm interested in is, does, does that underscore the fact that the president believes at this point in time that the current level of debt and deficit is unsustainable for the U.S. economy? What we want to make clear is you can do investment in the American people, child care, paid leave, uh, food assistance, health care, all while bringing down the deficit. But you do have to ask the wealthy in this country to pay their fair share. So there is a vision here. There is a contrast. You can be fiscally responsible and invest in the American people, or you can pull the rug out uh, from people by going after programs that people absolutely need. But does the White House expect this budget to get passed? How on earth would they get Republicans on board? Yeah, Poppy, no, there is no expectation that this budget is going to get passed. It is not going anywhere on Capitol Hill, especially where the House is now uh, controlled by Republicans. And to give you a sense of how much uh, this is really a political exercise, consider the fact that the president is going to be traveling to the important swing state of Pennsylvania to unroll his budget uh, in a speech that I suspect will sound a lot like a political campaign speech. Uh, as we heard the OMB director telling Phil there, uh, this is a way for 
for the White House and the president to lay out the groundwork for the very important political contrast that Democrats and President Biden would like to continue making between Democrats and Republicans heading into 2024. Also, more narrowly speaking, this, of course, is the beginning, really, of President Biden and his upcoming negotiations with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on raising the debt ceiling yeah. as well, Poppy. And there's that. Uh, MJ Lee at the White House, thanks very, very much. Ahead, more mayhem in the sky, a fight breaking out on a Southwest flight in Dallas before it even takes off. So uh, get the allergy medication ready. Allergy season hitting earlier than expected this year. A lot of people sniffling around this set. And Caitlin's like, no. We are not. Is it climate crisis to blame? I'm a big allergy sufferer. Do you? Yeah. Oh. I take Claritin like every All day. Ah, happened again. Another wild airline incident. This time, a fight breaking out between two passengers on a Southwest flight just before takeoff. One man putting the other in a headlock, calling him obscenities before punches were thrown. A passenger on the flight tells CNN the man in the tan jacket said the other man approached his family aggressively. Tell him what happened. Tell him what you did. I will sit down in jail for you approaching my family. I will die for my family. So that's why I beat your So let's get perspective on this. CNN's Ed Lavendera, live for us in Texas. Ed, good morning. This video finally gives us a full picture of what happened on this flight. What can you tell us? Good morning, Don. Well, things clearly escalated quickly. All this happened before the plane even left the gate here at Dallas Love Field on uh, Monday. Um, and as you mentioned uh, there, uh, according to the witnesses spoke with CNN, it had to have, it had to do with uh, an altercation or uh, one of the passengers who was receiving the punches uh, bumping into the other man's family. And the witness also said before the, the, the video even re- uh, started recording there, uh, there were three or four different punches already thrown uh, before that video even picked up. Uh, So some tense moments there before that flight even uh, left the gate. Uh, Southwest Airlines said in a statement that uh, it commends the actions of its crew and for uh, resolving the situation and also ensuring the comfort of other passengers on the plane. And this is, uh, they also went on to say that the flight uh, took off and arrived on time. It was a flight scheduled to leave from Dallas Love Field to Phoenix on uh, Monday. Uh, But clearly a great deal of tension now as spring break travelers start feeling filling up airports across the country. A reminder uh, that even though airplanes are full, tensions are also high, Don. And the Dallas Police Department, what are they saying? Uh, you know, both men were uh, taken off the plane. They, they left the plane um, and no charges were filed. Dallas police told us uh, yesterday that, that no charges were filed. None of the, the neither of the men uh, were arrested. So um, where exactly they ended up, if they caught another flight, we don't we don't exactly know. Uh, but that flight did uh, take off. And, but no no criminal charges being filed in this particular case. Ed Lavendera in Dallas. Thank you, Ed. All right, spring is not here. You heard Ed talking about spring break, but allergy season is already upon us. <laughs> Don't worry, that wasn't a real sneeze from Don. Why the pollen in the air, even here in the studio, is hitting new, new records. Well, we have that also, though, overnight, a barrage of missiles raining down across Ukraine, hitting the capital of Kiev and several other cities, knocking out power, killing innocent civilians. CNN is live on the ground. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
weeks away from the official start of spring, but boy, is Don sneezing a lot. In fact, <laughs> the falling count this season is setting record places, records in places like Atlanta. What's going on? Why so much pollen this early? Meteorologist Chad Myers is here. My colleagues suffer from this a lot. I, I have not, but apparently it's really bad. It is all the way up the East Coast. I mean, this is a weather pattern here that we had over the past month or two. Yes, it's been very warm. In fact, the warmest on record. But this is the climate pattern. We would expect this because over the last 52 years, temperatures have gone up one or two degrees compared to where we were. That means the growing season has also gotten longer in Atlanta by 34 days. In Minneapolis, the same. It is now frost free for now over one half of the year in Minneapolis, although it doesn't seem like it because you can get a late frost or an early frost, depending, and kill everything you put out there. New York City, though, you are over 240 days now frost-free. I took this picture this morning in my parking deck. This was a car that was clean just a few days ago. This is a black Honda, although you cannot tell what color it is. That's why I took the picture. This isn't some barn find that American Pickers picked out of a barn that's been sitting there for 30 years. <laughs> this car was clean just a week ago, and that's that what's in green, your lungs Chad. right now. That car is that car is yellow green. It is, and that's the pine <laughs> pollen. The pine pollen doesn't affect people as much as other pollens, but stay inside. Keep the windows closed on your car. Make sure you have some filters in your air conditioner or your heater. I have a little HEPA filter that I have in my bedroom, and it only really works for about three or 400 square feet. And yeah. so for the six or seven hours that I'm in my bedroom, it works. Now, for the rest of the time, it's really expensive to get a HEPA filter that can clean your entire house. But you have to do what you can. Keep those doors closed. That's in Atlanta, right? You took that picture? Yeah. I, I remember those days. My car, I would come out, and it would just be green, that yep. sort of um, yeah. chartreuse, whatever color. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Chad. It's serious. A lot of people do, do suffer from that. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, also, we are tracking major news overnight in Washington. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has been hospitalized after he fell at a Washington hotel. We have the latest on his condition. That's next. As you can see, the attack is really large scale and for the first time using such different types of missile. This is an attack like I don't remember seeing before. Different types of aircraft were used, strategic, long range, MiG-31. There were 81 missile launches. Wow. We wake up and we're shocked to hear about it, but the folks there in Ukraine are right in the middle of it and their people have died. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Russian missiles raining down across Ukraine, knocking out power, killing civilians and striking cities like Kyiv, which are far away from the actual fight. And we're going to go there live. Also this morning, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell hospitalized after tripping and falling last night at a Washington, D.C. hotel. We have the latest on his condition. And no relief for California after deadly blizzards trapped people for more than a week in the snow, as you see here. The state's now bracing for even more heavy snow and dangerous flooding. We have the latest seen in this morning starts right now. We begin this morning, this hour with Russia unleashing a massive barrage of missiles across Ukraine. The strikes killing innocent civilians and knocking out power far away from the front lines. 
several major cities hit, including the capital, Kyiv. Once again, it looks like the Russians are targeting the country's power supply to make the Ukrainian people suffer. Ukrainian officials say Russian missile destroyed homes and killed at least five people in the western city of Lviv, which is right on NATO's doorstep. For some context here, Lviv is more than 600 miles away from the fierce fighting in Bakhmut, where Ukrainian soldiers have been holding out against relentless Russian assaults. Well, this photo shows the missiles launching up across the border from Russian soil. Seen as Ivan Watson live for us on the ground in Kyiv this morning. Ivan, hello to you. Ukrainian President Zelensky is saying that Putin is once again trying to terrorize civilians. Yeah, good morning, Don. Well, I mean, this was, uh, in the words of the commander of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, a massive missile attack on Ukraine's critical infrastructure. And what I'm showing you here is just the impact of just one of the impact points. Uh, what we're hearing is a part of a missile that came down in a residential neighborhood just next to uh, an enormous apartment block here. The residents, they woke up around 7 o'clock this morning to cars on fire and this uh, spraying metal metal bits around here, shattering windows here. Uh, and again, this is just one of the impact points because the Ukrainian military says at least 81 different kinds of missiles and drones were fired at different regions and cities across this country overnight. They also say that the Ukrainian air defenses were able to shoot down at least 34 of the missiles and at least four of the Iranian made Shahed killer drones that are used in these cases. Uh, the uh, authorities in a number of different cities have said that it was electric power stations that appear to have been targeted. But look here, I mean, this is a residential neighborhood. There is a, a children's playground here. And it, and it just shows you how haphazard and how deadly and dangerous it can be when Russia fires uh, scores of, of deadly missiles uh, across a country. Uh, the city of Zhitomir, it had uh, its power knocked out, about 150,000 people without power. Here in Kiev, about 15% of the city's power has been knocked out. But I got to tell you, I spoke with uh, a woman and her adult daughter here. They said after this terrifying incident this morning, seven o'clock this morning, they still went to work. One of them went to teach, the other went to work at a bank. Uh, as they put it, they've kind of been immunized uh, after a year of war to terrifying instances like this. Don? Sadly, they haven't gotten used to it, but it's just a part of their lives right now. Ivan, I have to ask you, because this attack feels bigger. It feels more widespread than the shelling we have seen over the last few months. Why now? What's going on? Well, I mean, this isn't the first time that, that Russia has targeted Ukrainian cities and the infrastructure with these uh, salvos of missile attacks. But it doesn't seem to be able to sustain these attacks all the time. They seem to take place every couple of weeks or, or, or every month. To date, they have not succeeded in doing what many Russian state television propagandists want to do, which is to just absolutely make life unlivable here during the winter, knock out electricity, make Ukrainians freeze, as I've heard some Russian state propagandists say. Again, the power is back on. People are going to work. 
the Ukrainian government will argue that this is an attempt to terrorize Ukrainian civilians, and to some degree it has. People will not be able to sleep as well, I don't think, tonight. They're, they're fixing the windows in their apartments. They want their apartments to be, to be warm tonight, but everybody I've spoken to say they're not going anywhere, and that includes a woman with a seven-month-old baby that I talked to moments ago. Uh, that baby was born in Ukraine during the war, and that family is not leaving. Yeah. It is believed that some of the places that are closer to Poland, like Lviv, are safe spaces, but no safe spaces when you're at war. Ivan Watson, appreciate your reporting. Thank you. Be safe. So, well, let's pick up there where Ivan left off with retired Army Major Mike Lyons. Mike, thank you so much for being here. I mean, you just see on the map, right, everything, no place spared, really, no part of the country spared. But you were nodding your head at something Ivan said. Yeah, the, the fact that they couldn't sustain these. Even though they come, they come from the sea, they come from the sky, from the air. They're coming from all different places. They come in waves. They attack first with drones to overwhelm the air defense platform. That hits first. And then they bring in this Kenzal missile traveling at Mach 12. Nothing that Ukraine has can knock that out of the sky right now. But again, they start this one day and then they, they don't do it for a few weeks. And I think Russia can't sustain it. They can't sustain it. It's about, it's, I think it's about Bakhmut. It's about trying to forget about what's going on there and focus their energy towards they're trying to defend and their critical infrastructure. What we also heard as we played for people at the top of the show is that these were different, different range missiles, different weapons used, and Russia has typically been using different airplanes. Right. So I, I don't think Russia looks at it like kind of we look at it in, with regard to different kind of target systems for different we weapon yeah. systems. I think they just go war with whatever's available they use. And I think that's where they're down to. Okay. They're, they're out of their inventory on some of them. We know that, for example, that Kenzal missile, they have a, the, not as many as you would think that they should have. So they have to keep them somewhat in, in, uh, in the background. So I, I think they're not, they're not concerned about what the target is or how that comes. They just go war. Do you agree with the assessment uh, that Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines testifying before Congress yesterday said the expectation of the United States is not that Russia can make significant territorial gains, but this can be what we also heard the head of NATO say a few weeks ago, the sustained war of attrition. That's right. But who can last longer right. is the question. And does not does Russia not have the advantage if it's a war of attrition? They do. R right now, that's exactly what's happening. The, it's a stalemate on the ground. So Russia is attacking Ukraine's capability to wage war, not necessarily their ability to wage war. But there are things we can do. And I, the first thing is a Patriot missile. A Patriot missile can shoot out those hypersonic missiles that are coming. We've promised them one uh, back in December, what the president said. They need three, four, or five. If you, every one of these city, major cities, critical infrastructure needs to be protected by that. That's one thing the West can do. But at the end of the day, because of the West's support in Ukraine, it's matching up to what Russia is doing if we go to that war of attrition. Okay, Mike Lyons, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We're going to speak with the National Security Council coordinator for strategic communication. That's John Kirby. He'll be with us in less than an hour. Caitlin. And as we wait for that new overnight, more news out of Washington after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was hospitalized after he fell at a hotel in Washington. I want to bring in our congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox. Lauren, what do we know about his condition now that he is still in the hospital based on the latest update we got from his staff? Yeah, I mean, Caitlin, this is an ongoing issue, and we're trying to get more information this morning on what the top Republican in the U.S. Senate's condition is this morning. But what we know right now is last night at the Waldorf Astoria, he tripped, and this happened around a private dinner at that hotel. I want to read a statement from his office saying, this evening, Leader McConnell tripped at a local hotel during a private dinner. He's been admitted to the hospital where he is receiving 
treatment. Now, Mitch McConnell is the top Republican in the U.S. Senate, the longest serving Republican leader in that body. But one thing to keep in mind here is this comes as the Senate is narrowly divided between Republicans and Democrats. And as Democrats have two of their members who are not currently in the U.S. Senate because they are receiving their own medical care. That is Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is dealing with shingles, as well as Senator John Fetterman, the Pennsylvania Democrat, who has been at Walter Reed Hospital receiving inpatient care for clinical depression. So this all comes amidst uh, multiple absences in the U.S. Senate, but we will keep you updated on what more we are learning on McConnell's uh, condition this morning. Caitlin? Yeah, absolutely. We are thinking of the Senate Minority Leader hoping for a very quick recovery there. Lauren Fox, thank you, and let us know if there's any update. 34 countries are under states of emergency, 34 counties, I should say, under states of emergencies this morning, as immense snow banks trap San Bernardino County residents in their homes who fear that they will run out of food and supplies, and it's going to happen soon. The state is also bracing for another powerful storm. Forecasters say this one could bring more devastating flooding. We're going to turn now to see as Natasha Chan joins us now live from San Francisco. Good morning to you. Biggest concerns for residents right now, Natasha? Well, Don, the biggest concern is going to be flooding, especially in the foothill areas and the coastal ranges that have already gotten unusually heavy snowpack this season. Uh, the rain's really going to start coming into this northern California region uh, later this evening. And what a winter it's been for Californians. Uh, so many storms in a row. Some of them, as you mentioned, trapped, still recovering from the last one, barely catching a break before this next event comes in. California, already reeling from a season of deadly storms, is staring down the threat of more extreme weather. Rains are coming. There is nowhere for the rain to go. All I know is the culverts are completely uh, blocked with ice and snow piled high. More than 100 inches of snow has already fallen in the San Bernardino Mountains, where 12 deaths have been reported since February 25th. According to the county sheriff's department, only one death appears to be officially weather-related from a traffic accident. Many survivors are trapped in their homes without food. Sheriff deputies are going door-to-door to deliver boxes of essentials to those who cannot get out. Now, parts of the state are preparing for a strong string of storms known as an atmospheric river. I'm afraid of the wind mostly because the wind causes trees to just snap. The Weather Prediction Center says heavy torrential rain and all that melting snow could cause major flooding. More than 17 million people across central and northern California, including the San Francisco Bay Area and Sacramento and parts of Nevada, are under flood watches ahead of today's storm. We have saturated ground still from all the weather that we've seen over the last two months. And then when you add in some strong winds, those will take down trees. The trees will take down wires and that leads to power outages. Some people in Monterey County were told by emergency services to have two weeks of essentials stocked up ahead of the storm. In places like Santa Cruz County, emergency services are telling residents to get ready for any evacuation orders as rivers and creeks are expected to overflow. If there's an evacuation warning, we'll take the cats and go to a friend's house. 
I talked to a Caltrans spokesperson about the region northeast of here near the Nevada state line, uh, close to Lake Tahoe. They have had such a challenge keeping Interstate 80 open this winter season with jackknife big rigs and spinouts. I asked him, what are they expecting for this upcoming storm? And he told me, chaos. Don. Natasha Chen, thank you very much. So why is all of this happening? Let's go to meteorologist Chad Myers. He joins us again in the Weather Center. What on earth? is happening in California. Why does it continue to happen? The pattern changed. Hmm. The pattern changed from where we were making a very cold series of storms, making snow all the way down to sea level in Northern California. Now we are in a tropical-like system, as she called it, the atmospheric river. We used to call it Pineapple Express when I went to school. But here it is, back here, all the way from almost Hawaii, where the Pineapple Express term came from. And now that moisture, that tropical moisture, is going to run into California and run on top in warmer air on top of that snow that's already on the ground. So if you have feet of snow on your roof, all of a sudden that's gonna get very, very heavy because that snow is going to absorb the rainfall. And then in the higher elevations, it will wash away some of that snowfall. So rain on snow will begin to fill up parts of the San Joaquin Valley, all the way up towards Sacramento where our reporter was. The snow is all the way down still to about 2,500 feet. The rain will be all the way up to almost 8,000 feet, washing away much of this. What most people don't understand about California is that all the way up here in the Sierra, all the way back down to the northern coastal range, down to the southern coastal range, all the way down to Bakersfield, that's one big bathtub. All the water that's in here, whether it washes away in snow or rains, all has to go out through the Golden Gate Bridge, under the Golden Gate. There's only one way out, a giant bathtub with one drain. Now for the Santa Cruz area, all the way down Big Sur, this area is not in this bowl, but you will see flash flooding here. You may even see Highway 1 washed away in places. This is going to be a major weather event. Seven inches of rain on the higher elevations above 10,000 feet, another five to six feet of snow. Wow. I, I know they needed the rain, but oh, okay, let's, let's, yeah. let's slow it down a little. I mean, from one extreme to the next, no reprieve for California. Chad, thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Also this morning, the University of Alabama basketball player Brandon Miller has broken his silence since having his name involved in that tragic January shooting on campus that killed 23-year-old Jamia Harris. This comes after a police investigator testified that the gun that was brought to the scene in Miller's car. Miller has not been charged with a crime. We should note his attorney says that Miller never even touched the gun. But Miller has also not sat out any games as Alabama has continued to play since the incident. That has received some criticism of how the team and the coach have handled it. I never lose sight of the fact um, a family has lost one of their um, loved ones that night. Um, this whole situation is just um, really heartbreaking. Um, but respectfully, uh, that's all I'm going to be able to say about on that. As a reminder, two men, including former Alabama basketball player Darius Miles, are facing murder charges in this case. New this morning, former NBA star Sean Kemp is under arrest in Washington State in connection with a drive-by shooting incident. The Pierre County Sheriff's Office says a 53-year-old was booked into jail last night. No injuries 
reported. Kemp, a six-time NBA All-Star, played for the Seattle Supersonics for eight years. He also played for the Cavaliers, the Trailblazers, and the Orlando Magic. Business owners near that Norfolk Southern train derailment in Ohio say that they are getting no support from the company in the aftermath. We are live in East Palestine. And wait until you see here this. Can AI recreate your voice well enough to fool your parents? Can it be used to potentially blackmail your CNN colleagues? Who would ever do that? Donny O'Sullivan puts it to the test. Donny O'Sullivan is a real piece of shit. That's AI. Is it really? That's, AI. That's good. Yeah, Anderson is really good. Man. Because Anderson doesn't have a stupid Irish accent. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Many business owners in East Palestine, Ohio, really struggling in the wake of last month's toxic train derailment. And they say they're not getting support, not the support they need from Norfolk Southern. The rail company has come under intense scrutiny as fears grow over contamination to the air, the soil, the water there. This morning, the CEO of the train giant, Alan Shaw, will testify before Congress. Our Jason Carroll is back live in East Palestine this morning. You know, lawmakers will ask what they want to ask. The answers really matter for the people there. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Poppy, and there are definitely a lot of questions here. And where we are right now pretty much sets the scene for what we're talking about. If you take a look behind me, you see all these blue containers here? They are located on the property of this factory right next to the derailment site. They're going to be containing some of the hazardous materials collected from the site. The factory's owner says, as you can imagine, his workers are too afraid to come to work. And that's really the bottom line here. This has created an economic crisis for the people of East Palestine. And they want more specifics about what Norfolk Southern is going to do about it. As the cleanup effort continues in East Palestine, Ohio, Mike McKim says he has had enough. Sometimes when the wind's blowing the right way, it's almost unbearable to stay here. McKim is one of many residents who is taking Norfolk Southern up on its offer to pay people who live near the derailment site to temporarily relocate for the next two months. The EPA saying in a statement, Norfolk Southern has agreed to provide additional financial assistance. This assistance may include temporary lodging, travel, food, clothing, and other necessities. But McKim's worry is not just for his home, it's also about the future of his business. He and his wife, Ashley own McKim's Honey Vine and Winery. It's located about a block from the tracks. I want to continue to stay here. I want things to be good here. I want things to go back the way they were. But a million pounds of toxic waste were dumped 250 yards away from where we're standing at right now. What's your feelings of it? You know, you know, it, it, probably not good, right? What about these blue containers? I have no idea. <laughs> Edwin Wang has the same concerns. He owns two manufacturing plants in town that make parts for steel mills. The back door of one of his factories just feet away from the derailment and steps away from where Norfolk Southern did a controlled burn of toxic chemicals. So those tarps that you see over there covering what you believe is contaminated soil yes. on your property. I do not know what's going to happen to us in the future. They try to remove the uh, hazardous chemicals from this land, and I'm not sure the impact will last for how long. 
That's the uncertainty. Wang says no one from Norfolk Southern has come out to explain exactly what is happening on his property, despite his attempts to reach them. In response, Norfolk Southern telling CNN, after initial contact, Mr. Wang retained an attorney, who then scheduled a meeting with us before canceling last minute. We have not been able to reach him since, and we, of course, must go through his attorney. Regardless, we continue to be committed to making it right in East Palestine and look forward to following through with Mr. Wang as well. The rail company and EPA say the cleanup could take up to two months. Wang says Norfolk Southern is temporarily compensating his employees during that time, but with no one to man the machines and fill back orders, he's not sure there will be a business for his workers to come back to. Right now we are losing um, the business. We are also losing the skilled workers. People are scared. They are not willing to come back to work. This is the Issue. Do you think it's safe for them to come back to work? I don't know. Wang, like many here, will be watching what happens in Washington Thursday when Norfolk Southern CEO is set to testify in front of Congress. Business owners such as Jesse Wentz also will be listening closely to see if there is talk of a long-term economic plan to address the impact on East Palestine. This has become more of a need than a want-type income. She owns Cut and Loose Hair Shop and says half her business has been wiped out since the accident. Her message to Shaw and to Congress? I think just make it right. <laughs> I don't want to get emotional, but this is my income. This is how I raise my family. Just help us. I haven't gotten any help. I don't want Norfolk Southern to win and take this from me. So folks like Jesse Wentz are really looking for specifics. Are they going to compensate business owners like her? Uh, as for some homeowners who live right next to the site, will they be offering them buyouts? I think in addition to safety concerns, folks are really just looking for specifics here. Yeah. Guys, back to you. Real concrete answers. Jason, thank you. Let's bring in now the number three in the Senate leadership, and that is Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. She is a member of the Environment and Public Works Committee, which is holding the hearing this morning where Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw is expected to testify. We're so <laughs> glad to have you on this morning. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. So let's get Thanks, started John. here. You just heard those business owners, those residents, they are frustrated with the lack of uh, what they believe Southern, uh, Norfolk Southern is, their, their support there. They are uncertain about their future of their businesses, of their livelihoods, of their lives. Will you address that today at the hearing? Absolutely, Don. It's great to be with you. And it, on one hand, breaks my heart. And on the other hand, I have to say, it just makes my blood boil what is happening. Because it's, it's not rocket science when you look at the direction this has been going with the lobbyists trying to roll back safety regulations for years. We as Democrats are constantly fighting that. Luckily, the President Biden wants stronger safety regulations. But the truth is that they, roads in general, are down 30% on their staffing, and uh, which directly affects safety. And this company, who so far has said they would give $6.4 million to the community to address what we just heard, but in the last two years, they gave $6.5 billion in stock buybacks. And so these folks, like so many, get the monies at the top, they cut workers, they cut safety, and now here we are, and I have to say that they've had 20 
different rail derailments that affected a chemical spill since 2015. They almost had the 21st in Michigan two weeks after this in Van Buren Township. Well, let me, so, let me, let me ask you then, because you said uh, four million dollars. According to this is according to the Wall Street Journal, Norfolk Southern Corp will spend more than 20 million dollars to reimburse residents to clean up the the small town there, and also plant said that they are planning to make changes, and that's what he. Uh, intends to tell you today, $20 million to reimburse. Is that enough? Well, let me say, if it is 20 and not the 6.4 million that we were told, um, I'm glad to hear that. But is it enough? No, people need to be made whole. This was their responsibility with the railroad. We need to pass the legislation that our colleagues uh, from Ohio and Pennsylvania, that, that Senator Sher Brown is leading with J.D. Vance, the safety improvements need to pass that will make the railroads accountable for this, that will deal with staffing, that will deal with other safety issues. So uh, on the federal end, as well as whatever the state needs to do, we need to strengthen those standards. But the reality is this company cut corners, cut staff, chose to do stock buybacks that caused their pay to go up, the stockholders pay to go up, and weren't focused on the responsibilities that they needed to be in terms of safety for people and communities. Mm -hmm. You have a lot on, on your plate, Senator. The Biden administration, let's talk the budget now. The Biden administration sure. is gonna release its budget proposal today in light of what has happened in East Palestine. Would you want to see more funding in transportation and rail safety? Well, certainly. I mean, what we did in the infrastructure bill, I know that the, the president is certainly leaning in heavily around safety and not just rail safety, other kinds of safety for people and for communities. The great thing about this budget, I'm really excited, Don, about this budget because this is a president who is saying we're going to strengthen the great American success stories of Medicare and Social Security for the, you know, to 2050s. Uh, the Republicans say they want to raise the age of Social Security, raise the age of Medicare to 70, both of them to 70, privatize them, let Wall Street manage Social Security. Let's see how that would work. And the president's saying, no, we're going to strengthen it. We're going to take the money from negotiating prescription drugs, the savings, put it back into Medicare, strengthen Medicare. And we're going to say to the folks at the very top, hey, you can contribute a little bit more to something that is beneficial to everyone. So this is a vision about people investing communities, investing in people, as opposed to the other side whose radical, seriously, radical proposals would once again say those are the top do well and we're going to pay for it on the backs of seniors and veterans and kids and everybody else. Well, before I let you go, I have to ask you about the minority leader, Mitch McConnell, suffering a fall last night. Any word on how he's doing? I don't know. I certainly send him very, very best wishes. Um, hopefully this is not something serious and we'll see him back soon. Senator Debbie Sabino of Michigan will be watching the hearing today. Thank you very much. We appreciate you joining us here on CNN this morning. Very important hearing to watch. Also today we are tracking these pictures coming in from Tel Aviv. Thousands of protesters are demonstrating right now against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his plan to weaken Israel's judicial system in what is being called a day of disruption. You can see it here. Protesters even blocking the road to one of the main airport terminals. This is having real impacts, real effects. The Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin landed in Israel just a short time ago. He has meetings with Netanyahu and the Defense Minister in Israel. 
He was actually originally due to arrive yesterday, but they had to change his schedule. His trip was delayed because of concerns about these protests. Deep fake technology has brought us lifelike versions of celebrities or fictional characters in new ways we couldn't imagine a decade ago. But how easy is it to use AI to fake someone else's voice? It turns out it's that easy. Didn't that sound like me? That was not me. That was AI pretending to be me. Donio Sullivan is here with his interesting and pretty frightening report. So can your ear pick up the difference between an AI-generated voice and the real thing? Listen. It's actually a lot harder than it sounds. Yes, this is an AI version of my voice. Again, I did not record this. This is entirely fake. Right? <laughs> totally fake. It only took a couple minutes from recording about a minute of my voice for AI to make what you just heard. And it may seem like a fun way to prank your friends, maybe your parents, but there are serious concerns about this. Concerns that U.S. intelligence agencies warn could be a threat to national security. Donny O'Sullivan is here with a fascinating, frightening look. Yes, you might think my parents have suffered enough. Uh, look, this is a very serious issue, uh, but we did want to take a look at it to show you how it all works. Uh, and we test it out on my parents. Have a look. Hello? Hi, Mom. Hi, Donny. How are you? Does my voice sound different to you? Yeah, I just said that to Sinead. I said, Donny, it's American. This is not actually me. This is a voice made by computer. Oh my God, are you serious? Yeah, I'm sorry. There has been an explosion in fake audio and voices being generated through artificial intelligence technology. This is an AI cloned version of Walter White's voice. This is an AI cloned version of Leonardo DiCaprio's voice. All you need is a couple of minutes recording of anyone's voice and you can make it seem like they have said just about anything, even Anderson Cooper. We've come here to UC Berkeley today to talk to Hanny Fareed, a digital forensic expert, about just how easy it is to put words into other people's mouths. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> sure. But it's also really scary. I think once you put aside that gee whiz factor, I don't think it takes a long time to look at the risks. This is Wolf Blitzer. Hanny Fareed, you are in the Situation Room. That sounds That's good. Yeah, that sounds That's good. good. By uploading just a few minutes of me and some of my colleagues' voices to an AI audio service, I was able to create some convincing fakes, including this one of Anderson Cooper. Donny O'Sullivan is a real piece of shit. That's AI. That's <laughs> really? That's AI. That's good. Yeah, Anderson is really good. Man. Because Anderson doesn't have a stupid Irish accent. The technology did struggle with my Irish accent, but we decided to put it to the ultimate test with my parents. I am about to try call my mom back in Ireland and see if I can trick her with this voice. Yeah. I think I'm going to be successful. I'm nervous. I'm like, my hands are. <laughs> All right. Hello? Hi, Mom. Hi, Dorney. How are you? Just finished shooting our story here. I'm going to the airport in a while. Right. There seems to be a delay in the phone, Dorney. Can I say a quick hello to Dad? Yep. How you doing, Amy? Hi, Dad. How are you, Dad? How are you? Good yourself? Just finished shooting our story here. I'm going to the airport in a while. How are you? Oh, you're coming back. You're coming back again, Amy? Are Kerry playing this weekend? Yeah, playing Kerry on uh, 
My dad went on to have a conversation with the AI Doni about how Kerry, our home football team, had a game that weekend. Eventually, I had to come clean. Dad, I'll give you a call better later on. Could you just put me back on to mom for a second? My parents knew something was off, but ultimately they still fell for it. Oh yeah, some of it don't be bad, but it was like um, it was like your voice was a little tone lower and it sounded very serious. Yeah. Like you were something serious to say. Because I went, oh jeez, my heart was hopping first. Oh, sorry. Oh, the voice is very funny. <laughs> the voice is very funny, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll call you later, Dad. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is not classic. The mom is like, something's wrong with my son. The dad's like, everything's fine. (laughs) I'd like to close out today's ceremony with a question. If you were given a choice, would you choose to have unlimited bacon but no more video games? With fake Biden and Trump recordings going viral online, Fareed says this could be something to be wary of going into the 2024 election. When we enter this world where anything can be fake, any image, any audio, any video, any piece of text, nothing has to be real. We have what's called the liar's dividend, which is anybody can deny reality. With a flood of new AI tools releasing online, he says companies developing this powerful technology need to think of its potential negative effects. There is no online and offline world. There's one world, and it's fully integrated. When things happen on the internet, they have real implications for individuals, for communities, for societies, for democracies. And I don't think we as a field have fully come to grips with our responsibility here. In the meantime, I'll continue annoying my colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> Hear this thing Anderson said. I've been doing this. Oh, interesting. <laughs> what happened? We cut off the best We bit. cut off the best yeah, part. It was Anderson Cooper saying I'm the best that he's ever worked with. Oh, well, no. that's true. That, well, I know. There's a reason. Donny, I'm going to let my AI ask the question. Okay. This seems like a fun, entertaining look into this new technology, but there could be some really frightening implications for this, right? Who is that? It doesn't sound that much. I, 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 I kind of think that sounds like you. you. Is that me? That is you, yeah. <laughs> do I sound like that? No. That's not a way. Do you, can you play that again, please? <laughs> Don wants a new AI. Uh, awkward. Uh, this seems like a fun, entertaining look into this new technology, but there could be some really frightening implications for this, right? It sounds like Willie Geist. I do. Like, if you were Willie Geist, the wrong show. But I think, to me, that kind of, like, you know, if you're just hearing that on the go on your phone or something on the fly, people could mistake that for you. To answer your AI question. Do you question, think that's me if I called, if you got that? No. Okay. So that's Sorry. actually comforting to me well, to know that next AI can be hours every day. You, you, you really know what each other sound like. Um, to answer your question, uh, <laughs> your AI question, which was what is the possible dangers of this technology? Look, we obviously had some fun with it there. We're having fun with it here. Uh, but it's not easy. It's not hard to see how this could all go very badly, very quickly, right. particularly as we go into next year's 2024 elections. Think about the role tapes have played audio tapes have played mm-hmm. in previous campaigns. Yeah. Okay, I want to hear mine. Let's see what it sounds like. What exactly could this be used for? What industries could it revolutionize? Mm. Little better. A little bit. Computer me. Yeah, I yeah, that one. So it it has a tough time at accents. Uh, the Irish accent. The southern accent. <laughs> my oh my. Um, but, <laughs> I feel like it did Minnesota pretty well. It did, yeah. I will say that uh, what is scary about this technology, though, right, to, to generate those, even to generate that really realistic one of Anderson, uh, it only takes about a minute or two of audio. You'd pop it into these systems and you can immediately start doing that. A few years ago, as Hanny Freed, who was in that piece there, he would have told us, you would have needed hours and hours and hours of audio 
to recreate this, which you can now do with a minute and do it in a few seconds. Mm. Love it. Scary. Pretty awesome. All right. We'll see you guys soon. The best we've ever worked. I sound like (laughs) Willie Geist. Next time you call me, who knows who it'll be. (laughs) You blocked my number. (laughs) (laughs) Not for air, Tony. Okay, anyway, a drone and some string and an iPhone. Those are three things you might need next time. You need to MacGyver your way out of a situation. That's what an Oregon man did when he was snowed in in his car. We're going to show you actually a live in-studio demonstration of what that looked like. And the six-year-old who allegedly shot his teacher back in January will not face charges. What we're hearing from a prosecutor this morning. All right, this morning, the six-year-old boy who shot his teacher in Virginia will not face criminal charges. Police say that the child, as you know, brought the gun in his backpack on January 6th. He shot his 25-year-old teacher in the hand and her chest. She survived, luckily. Authorities, though, have yet to decide whether the parents are going to be held criminally liable. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us now. Omar, what is the city prosecutor saying about this decision? Obviously, this is an incredibly bizarre case with yeah. a six-year-old child. What is the prosecutor saying? And, and a sensitive one. You know, the, the prosecutor says that they've researched it thoroughly, and at this point, they don't believe the law supports prosecuting or potentially even convicting this six-year-old. Now, as you mentioned before coming to me, that the parents, though, we still don't fully know if they're off the hook. Take a listen. After researching this issue thoroughly, we do not believe the law supports charging and convicting a six-year-old with aggravated assault. Are you able to say that the prosecutorial efforts are focusing on the the parents? Well, I I can say the prosecutorial efforts are are focused on determining what the facts are, applying those facts to the law, and determining whether we can charge anyone with a crime that we can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the attorney representing the kid's parents say this gun was kept on the top shelf of the mom's bedroom closet, secured by a trigger lock. But it's unclear how he actually got the weapon back in January. Police, the police chief said it was certainly possible that the mother could face charges. But obviously, we haven't seen anything here yet. What do we know about the teacher still in recovery? Well, the teacher was able to make a relatively quick recovery. She was out after about a week after being shot in the chest. But her main question now, or this other part of recovery, is figuring out how this happened. Her attorney alleges that school officials knew that there was a gun on campus that day. Uh, Now, the previous principal, the principal at the time, has denied this. But the teacher's attorney wants to know how this all unfolded, especially since the attorney says that this kid had a history of behavioral issues, had just been suspended for breaking this teacher's cell phone. And it was the day, according to this attorney, that the student got back that this shooting happened. So obviously, still a lot to sort out here, even if the six-year-old isn't going to be charged. And you will continue to follow. Thank you, Omar. All right. Also this morning, we have more on the overnight missile bombardment across Ukraine. It was an incredibly major attack. Major cities were struck. At least 11 people so far have been killed. Europe's largest nuclear power plant has now been completely disconnected. The White House's John Kirby is standing by to discuss next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Russia has unleashed a wave of massive, a massive wave of missiles all across Ukraine overnight. This is actually what it looks like in Kyiv right now. They struck several 
major cities. You can see the immense amount of damage here. They knocked out power. Civilians have been killed hundreds of miles away from the front lines. Nowhere even close. Ukraine's military says that Russia has fired all sorts of different missiles overnight, including hypersonic ballistic missiles that cannot be shot down by Ukraine's air defenses. As you can see, the attack is really large scale and for the first time using such different types of missiles. This is an attack like I don't remember seeing before. Different types of aircraft were used, strategic, long-range, MiG-31. There were 81 missile launches. President Zelensky says the Russians are, quote, returning to their miserable tactics of terrorizing civilians. Last night, he spoke with Wolf Blitzer in an exclusive interview talking about his, how he believes his Air Force still needs those F-16 fighter jets. We don't have the fighter jets to, to deal with it, and we, to counteract the Russian hits, and we really need uh, this, and uh, really appeal to the president that they could start training Ukrainian pilots. And uh, President Biden told me that uh, it would be worked upon, and uh, I believe that uh, uh, United States will give us the opportunity to uh, defend and defend our skies. Joining us now from the White House lawn is John Kirby, the White House's National Security Council spokesman. John, we see fighting in, in Ukraine every day. We see attacks every day. But this seems to be different. What more can you tell us? This was a sizable set of airstrikes with a mix of, of platforms, whether it's drones, cruise missiles, and we've seen the reports of hypersonics. Uh, the Ukrainians are, are reporting more than 80 missiles. We certainly can't confirm that specific number, but we certainly wouldn't refute it. This was a sizable set of airstrikes, and it wasn't just in terms of the targets, uh, civilian infrastructure for sure, knocking out the power, trying to turn off the heat. Certainly they affected places like Kyiv, but also, and Odessa, but also just widespread across the country. Caitlin, all the way, hitting all the way as far west as Lviv. So this was a significant night for the Ukrainians. And sadly, uh, some Ukrainians died as a result of this, of this, just these brutal tactics. Are they using new missiles, John? Because we're hearing about these Kinzhal missiles that Russia is apparently including in this wave of attacks. The Kinzhals, yeah, I mean, so I think there's uh, uh, there's various reporting here on what they're using. We certainly believe that they use cruise missiles. We certainly think that they use drones, uh, most likely drones that they got from uh, Iran. And we've seen these reports of hypersonics. This would not be the first time that uh, the Ukrainians used hypersonics. Uh, they've done this in the past. It's difficult to understand why you would need a hypersonic missile to hit a, a fixed building so far away uh, when you have other, other means at your disposal. Does Ukraine have anything right now that can knock these Kinzhal missiles, these hypersonic missiles out of the sky? Hypersonic missiles are generally very, very difficult to counter. Um, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me that, that Ukrainian air defenses uh, are limited in their ability uh, to go after uh, hypersonic missiles. That said, we have put a lot of effort into the air defense capabilities for Ukraine, not just the United States, but our allies and partners. Uh, and they have done a remarkable job with the various tools and capabilities that they've been getting on air defense from short and medium range kinds of systems. It's important to note uh, that here we are a year into this war, and the, and the Russians have still not achieved anything close to air superiority in the skies over Ukraine. And that's because the Ukrainians have been very, very effective at air defense. Yeah, but John, would it have helped if they had the Patriot missile battery system in this, in this situation, which they still don't have? 
The Patriot bat battery uh, system, the Patriot missile uh, system, uh, is really designed to go after ballistic missiles, um, and it's it's not as effective uh, on cruise missiles, and it's certainly not going to be effective uh, against drones. So uh, it's doubtful that you could say, well, if they had the Patriots, that it would make uh, a huge difference in this particular type of uh, barrage, because this was largely cruise missiles uh, and drones. Any indication they're using Iranian missiles yet, John? No indications that they have uh, purchased or are using uh, missiles uh, from Iran. Uh, we suspect, we believe uh, that uh, most of what they're using are, are these drones. Okay, John, I want to get you to respond because we're hearing from the Russian Ministry of Defense. They are saying that they launched this massive retaliation strike for an alleged attack in Bryansk in Russia. Can you respond to that? Is that what you're seeing here? It's difficult to know. I certainly can't confirm the, the Russians' account of this, and I think we need to all take whatever the Russians are saying uh, with a huge grain of salt here in, in terms of their justification. I mean, this, these kinds of these strikes, while they were certainly massive, are very much of a piece of the kinds of brutalizing tactics that Mr. Putin has been visiting upon the Ukrainian people now for several m months now, and in terms of hitting civilian infrastructure, targeting uh, the kinds of facilities that the Ukrainians need just to subsist. President Zelensky was speaking with Wolf last night. He told him that they, they still want those F-16 fighter jets. They at yeah. least want the Ukrainians being trained on them. Is it under discussion either giving them the F-16s or training Ukrainian pilots at least on how to use them? There's no plans to train Ukrainian pilots right now on the F-16. And as you heard the president say, uh, you know, this is not a, a topic uh, right now that we are uh, seriously talking about and considering uh, for the Ukrainians. We are working with them in lockstep every day to try to get them the capabilities that they need for the weeks and months ahead. And really, there's four categories. It's air defense, it's armor, it's artillery, and it's ammunition. And that's what we're focused on providing them. But Zelensky says that he actually kind of thinks the president is wrong when he says they don't need the F-16s. He said that they would help us defend ourselves. He said we need it urgently. Yeah. And he actually believes they could make or break the war. Yeah, look, you can't blame President Zelensky for wanting more advanced capabilities as, as much as he can get and as fast as he can get it. And certainly we, we see that uh, there is a real air defense need. And that's why we're trying to focus on the kinds of air defense capabilities, short and medium range, uh, that the Ukrainians really could use to help knock down some of these missiles. And they were successful in knocking down quite a few of these uh, from last night. President Zelensky also said that Russia must leave all Ukrainian territory before they can talk about diplomacy. Is that something the U.S. agrees with, that only after the Russians have left all Ukrainian territory, then they can have conversations? We believe President Zelensky gets to determine the, the conditions under which he'd be willing to negotiate with Mr. Putin. He's the commander in chief. It's his country that's been invaded. It's his citizens that are being brutally slaughtered. Uh, he gets to determine uh, if and when he's going to be ready to sit down at the table and under what circumstances and what he might be willing to negotiate. I'll tell you this. We're going to make sure that he continues to be able to succeed on the battlefield so that if and when he's ready to sit down at that table, he can do it from a position of strength. All right, John Kirby, very important uh, developments overnight. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You bet. Glad to be with you. Really important conversation to start the hour. Also, this overnight, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is being treated this morning in the hospital. He took a fall last night at a hotel in Washington, D.C. His spokesman says the 81-year-old senator was attending a private dinner when he tripped. McConnell previously did suffer a fall in August of 2019 when he fractured his shoulder. Let's go straight to Capitol Hill. Lauren Fox has more. Obviously, we're wishing the best for him, hopefully a speedy recovery, but do we know how severe this was? 
Yeah, I mean, right now, Poppy, we don't have any more information about the extents of any injuries suffered from that fall. What we do have is a statement from his office. His spokesman saying, this evening, Leader McConnell tripped at a local hotel during a private dinner. He has been admitted to the hospital where he is receiving treatment. This fall happened, we've now confirmed, at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Washington, D.C. Like you mentioned, Mitch McConnell is 81 years old. He is the longest-serving Republican leader in the history of the U.S. Senate, and he was someone that his colleagues look to for advice, someone that leads the conference through battles with Democrats as well as bipartisan negotiations, and he is someone that we are going to be keeping a close eye on. But this comes, of course, as the Senate is narrowly divided already and as two Democratic senators are out receiving treatment for their own health issues, including Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's dealing with shingles, as well as Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania who is at Walter Reed Medical Center receiving treatment for clinical depression. So a lot of questions right now about how long Mitch McConnell will be out. We'll keep you posted as we get more information. Poppy? Lauren, thank you very much. California bracing for yet another powerful storm this morning known as an atmospheric river. And it could bring with it more devastating flooding. State of emergency declared for 21 more counties in addition to 13 from last week. Some San Bernardino County residents are still trapped in their homes with dwindling supplies, waiting for huge snowbanks to be cleared. Want to get to the ground now, seeing as Natasha Chen joins us live from Sacramento. What are residents being told to prepare, but for how long? Yeah, Don, the California residents here have gotten just storm after storm. A uh, couple of days of break here, and we're expecting the rain to really come in later this evening. So officials in many counties have been telling people uh, yesterday and today, early this morning, if you've got snow on top of your roofs, uh, to try and clear that as best as possible because another storm is coming in. California, already reeling from a season of deadly storms, is staring down the threat of more extreme weather. Rains are coming. There is nowhere for the rain to go. All I know is the culverts are completely uh, blocked with ice and snow piled high. More than 100 inches of snow has already fallen in the San Bernardino Mountains, where 12 deaths have been reported since February 25th. According to the county sheriff's department, only one death appears to be officially weather-related from a traffic accident. Many survivors are trapped in their homes without food. Sheriff deputies are going door-to-door to deliver boxes of essentials to those who cannot get out. Now, parts of the state are preparing for a strong string of storms known as an atmospheric river. I'm afraid of the wind mostly because the wind causes trees to just snap. The Weather Prediction Center says heavy torrential rain and all that melting snow could cause major flooding. More than 17 million people across central and northern California, including the San Francisco Bay Area and Sacramento and parts of Nevada, are under flood watches ahead of today's storm. We have saturated ground still from all the weather that we've seen over the last two months. And then when you add in some strong winds, those will take down trees. The trees will take down wires and that leads to power outages. Some people in Monterey County were told by emergency services to have two weeks of essentials stocked up ahead of the storm. In places like Santa Cruz County, emergency services are telling residents to get ready for any evacuation orders as rivers and creeks are expected to overflow. 
If there's a evacuation warning, we'll take the cats and go to a friend's house. The North Tahoe area has seen an increase in emergency calls for gas leaks and carbon monoxide following recent storms delivering heavy snow. And officials say this freeze and thaw cycle, along with the weight of the heavy snowpack, is uh, causing some stress on tanks and plumbing, causing dangerous leaks. And of course, with the rain coming in, all that snow could melt on top of structures, causing potential collapses in the next few days. Don. Natasha, thank you. Okay, we have covered a lot of interesting survival stories here on the show, but the next one is really something remarkable. Picture this, you're trapped in your car, you're on a snowy road in the middle of nowhere, your phone doesn't have any service, there's no way for you to call for help. That is exactly what happened to a man in Oregon back in January. This is the road that he was stuck on in the Willamette National Forest. The local sheriff's office says the man came up with a very clever way to save himself. It turns out he had a drone in his car, so he tied his phone to it, as you can see here, with some blue string. And this is a reenactment provided by the sheriff's office. But we have CNN's drone operator live in studio right now. What would that even look like? You can see there the phone is attached to the drone. According to the sheriff's office, this man in Oregon hit send on a text that had his location on it to a friend. And then he flew the drone high enough in the sky that the phone received service. And the text for help actually went through. That friend, a very good friend, then contacted the authorities and they sent a rescue team to go and save him. All because of a drone and a phone. I mean, it's pretty smart. I, lo I love this story. Everything worked <laughs> out right for him. He had a drone, he had a good friend, they found him. I'm waiting to see this on the next episode of MacGyver. Okay. Yeah, I know who I'm bringing with me if I ever go driving through the forest. Yeah. And this is us. This is the drone camera? Oh, ooh, that could Apparently. be dangerous. Not could be dangerous. I think no. it's a little dangerous. <laughs> they were testing we this in the last block, and we were all, well, look what it does. For they are all concerned that it was going to fall on us. Yeah. It was blowing the paper. It's really incredible, out. though. It's like yeah. such a smart thing for him to do. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, to part with your phone, I'd be like, do I want to part with maybe yeah, the it's only risky. means of communication? It's risky. It was, he took a risk, right? What a calculated risk. What if it had fallen off and then he'd have no communication? Yeah. Unless it's like, take the drone and then do it like a puppy. Come this way. Love the story. Yeah. It's amazing. All right. Uh, coming up, it has been 30 years <laughs> since the Family and Medical Leave Act was signed into law. There is still no paid family leave in America. Two members of the House, one Republican, one Democrat, say it is finally time that that will change. Will it? We'll ask Congresswoman Stephanie Weiss and Chrissy Houlihan next. I hope they could hear that over the more CNN This Morning to come after the break. Delivering the first piece of social legislation promised during the campaign, President Clinton has signed into law the Family and Medical Leave Bill. Mr. Clinton used the ceremony to say that legislative gridlock has come to an end. Now that we have won this difficult battle, let me ask all of you to think about what we must do ahead to put the public interest ahead of special interests. Right. What must we do ahead? That was our very own Wolf Blitzer reporting back in 1993 as then President Bill Clinton signed the Family and Medical Leave Act into law for 30 years. It has guaranteed certain employees up to 12 weeks of leave for the birth of a new child or a serious illness. But it is clear it does not go far enough for almost every family because it doesn't mean you get paid. 
Dr. Elizabeth Slaglin, OBGYN in Minnesota, just wrote this in the Minneapolis Star Tribune this week, quote, while groundbreaking 30 years ago, FMLA leaves out millions of private sector employees. It doesn't provide paid pay during leave, leaving employees with a job to come back to, but no paycheck. A bipartisan group of lawmakers think that they finally do, though, have a path forward to make this a reality. The leaders of that group are in the House, Stephanie Bice, Republican from Oklahoma and a member of the Appropriations and Budget Committees, and Chrissy Houlihan, Democrat from Pennsylvania, member of the Armed Services and Intelligence Committees. They wrote an op-ed together in the Hill, let me read you this, to reach its potential, paid leave policy must be durable, it must be bipartisan, which is why our focus on finding consensus will be unwavering, a policy that depends on party in power is in constant jeopardy and therefore hardly a policy at all. We can and we must do better. Will they join me now? Good morning and thank you. Good morning. Good morning. You're both mothers of daughters and you share a hallway and you're working together on this, but it never seems to be enough, right? Can you, let me just begin with you, Representative Vice, and what brought you together on this? You know, um, Christy and I got to know each other uh, last Congress after I was elected, and we just kind of bonded. Um, as you mentioned, we both have uh, daughters, and really, um, this started when we ran legislation to allow for armed service uh, men and women to be able to take family leave, and we felt like that this is something that um, every family should have the opportunity mm -hmm. to partake in, and so that really began this journey of us looking to find a way uh, to get paid family leave across the finish line finally. It's extraordinary that only one in four working Americans right now even has access to paid leave. It's something everyone should have. It, it should not be a privilege in this country. Um, what I think is interesting, Representative Houlihan, is you said there's just a lack of focus on the family. Those are your words. And one of the reasons you left the armed services was in part because of the lack of this. Why do you think this country puts such a lack of value on caregiving? Uh, you know, I can't answer that question. It's confounding to me, to be honest. We are a country that really does care about our families and our children, but we haven't, you know, put our money where our mouth is historically. And as you mentioned, the FMLA is 30 years old. My daughter, my oldest, is 30 years old. And so it's been decades and decades of us saying that we will work for the family and not, as you said, you know, kind of making it happen. And you said one in four, 75% of American families do not have access to paid leave. And that puts us in the bottom of, you know, developed nations in terms of what we do to provide help for our families. You also brought up importantly, childcare as well. These are inextricably bound to one another too. So we need to be working on first paid family leave and then making sure that we're rounding it out with all the other uh, critical care issues. Representative Bice, you in the private sector 20 years ago, you actually got this paid leave, which was rather unheard of then, certainly not the norm. I wonder if you would have left your job at the time without it. Likely I would have. Hmm. Uh, I would have exited the workforce for some time, but uh, the company that I worked for provided uh, a short-term disability uh, option that allowed me to take eight weeks off and then additionally uh, vacation time afterwards. And so 
as you mentioned, it was highly unusual uh, back then. And right now, 65% of um, working parents, uh, I'm sorry, of parents are working, both parents working Mm -hmm. in a household. And so making sure that uh, we're allowing the opportunity for them to stay home with newborn um, children or adopted children is really critical. And as Republicans, we talk about making sure we're supporting the family. And this is one way that we can do that. But the philosophical divide between your parties has been, how do you pay for it? And that is a divide that has been impassable. It has been something you guys have not been able to figure out. The Washington Post notes of your plan that there is, quote, no firm goal. And there's a reluctance to talk about the specifics. Representative Houlihan, what is the specific goal? And are you two, uh, do you agree on how to pay for it? So our specific goal, and we've talked about this, is to have open eyes, open ears, open mind, to sort of hit reset on how we think about this and not think R and D, uh, and to really importantly advance paid leave for more people. Whether or not we're going to solve for the rest of the 75% of the universe that doesn't have paid leave right now remains to be seen. But this is early days. We're only you know, a month and a half into this. And we're making sure that we set level set our expectations and that we level set our information so that we can actually work together collaboratively. As importantly, we're working with the Senate as well. Uh, because as you probably remember with your schoolhouse rock, nothing happens with one side <laughs> of the Capitol. Uh, and so we need to make sure that we're yes. also working collaboratively right. with both sides of the aisle over there. And and you've got senators who are on board in terms of, you know, supporting this Republican senator like Bill Cassidy. But but Representative Bice, I just want to press on the paying for an issue, because as great as it sounds, it goes nowhere if you guys can't figure out how to pay for it. Are the two of you on the same page on do you raise taxes to pay for it? What do you do to pay for it? Look, I think that we have to um, examine all of the options. And there have been a lot of proposals that have been put out there uh, by Republicans and Democrats, House and Senate. And our goal is to really um, take a step back, look at all of the things that have been put on the table and sort of figure out how can we tweak these to be more effective? You know, the Tax and Jobs Cuts Act of 2017 had a provision in it that allowed for um, companies to get a tax credit if they offered um, paid family leave to their employees. We want to look at, is that effective? How many people are taking advantage of that? What's the outcome? And so we're going to really look um, deep dive into uh, all of these options and figure out how do we pay for it? Look, as a Republican, it would be very difficult for me to say I would be um, you know, supportive of some sort of paid uh, leave program that was a government program. I can't do that. We can't afford it. Uh, but there are things that we can do involving the government and private sector that can actually move this issue forward. We all hope that you guys can come to an agreement. Thanks for the time very much this morning and good luck. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Don. Excessive force, aggressive style of policing, and unreasonable tactics. More on the Justice Department's report on the Louisville Police Department and how the city is responding. The police chief and the mayor of Louisville, they're going to join us live next. Coming up in just minutes, we're going to talk to Senator Joe Manchin. Caitlin's over there getting ready for that. But first, this morning, we're getting a blistering report on the police department in Louisville, Kentucky. This conduct is unacceptable. It is heartbreaking. It erodes the community trust necessary for effective policing. And it is an affront to the vast majority of officers who put their lives on the line every day to serve Louisville with honor. 
So the Department of Justice detailing how officers routinely used excessive force, discriminated against minorities, and violated their constitutional rights. The nearly 90-page report was the culmination of an investigation launched after the botched raid that killed Breonna Taylor in March of 2020. Now, according to the report, DOJ investigators found that for years, LMPD has practiced an aggressive style of policing that it deploys selectively, especially against black people, but also against vulnerable people throughout the city. Some officers have videotaped themselves throwing drinks at pedestrians from their cars, insulted people with disabilities, and called black people monkeys, animal, and boy. Here's how Breonna Taylor's mom is reacting. I don't even know what to think, to know that this, this thing should have never happened and that it took three years for anybody else to say that he shouldn't have. It's heartbreaking to know that everything you've been saying from day one has to be said again um, through this manner, you know, it, that it took this to even have somebody look into this department. So the investigation which culminated in this report is focused on incidents from 2016 until the end of 2021, which was under the city's previous administration and police chiefs. So joining us now to discuss the DOJ findings is Mayor of Louisville, Craig Greenberg, and the interim police chief, Jackie Gwen Villaroel. Thank you both for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, chief, I'm going to start with you because you were sworn in at the beginning of the year along with, um, I should say, Mayor, that you, you were sworn in. Um, you inherited the situation. So, Chief, should your citizens have any reason now to trust this police department? Well, first of all, good morning. Um, the, the report is very troubling. Um, and, and there's actions in those in the report that we must address and we will address. But I want to speak to the community and just reassure them that we're going to do everything we possibly can to rebuild the trust that is needed. Um, the citizens of Louisville are, are wonderful people, um, but we have to be intentional and thoughtful as how we engage the community and uh, ensure that we are here to protect and serve them. They deserve that. And so every day we're building upon the relationships that we've built, but we need to strengthen them. And as the leader, um, it starts with me to uh, model that and for my command staff to also demonstrate that um, so the troops and actually can implement that throughout the city. Same question to you, Mayor. Why should people trust this police department? Well, the chief and I knew when we assumed our offices uh, two months ago, we knew this report was underway, but we didn't know what the findings would be. But we took our offices ready to embrace reform, ready to embrace improvement, because we both believe that while this report is infuriating, it's difficult to read about these painful incidents, we need, it was an important day, we needed to address what's happened in the past so that we can move forward into the future with progress, with reform, with improvement of our police department, of our city government, really with the entire community. And we are both committed to embracing reform and improvement, to work collaboratively with the United States Department of Justice, collaboratively with the entire city of Louisville, so that we can have a police department that is the model for all across America one that everyone trusts, regardless of who they are. That is what we're striving for. 
Mayor, in your comments yesterday, you said many of these people in your community, quote, spoke out and they felt dismissed or devalued. We just played for you what Breonna Taylor's mom said, but there were and are so many people in Louisville who were dismissed. Um, One woman told DOJ in this investigation that she had told the police over and over again about this detective who was extorting sex from her daughter, and they didn't believe her. And it turns out he was. And it turns out five years later, after potentially other victims, that this was actually addressed. Will people be believed now? I I certainly hope so. Uh, To those whose voices were not heard, over the past several years, over the past decades. Yesterday was an important day. The United States Department of Justice essentially said, yes, we have heard you, we heard your complaints, and you were right. And as painful as that is as a city, uh, we have to acknowledge that. And that's the only way that we can heal the wounds that still exist in our city. And that's the only way that we can now work to come together better than we have to move forward. And so it's certainly a a painful report, uh, but an important report. After um, George Floyd, um, after Breonna Taylor, after Ahmaud Arbery and and other such incidents around the country in 2020, the the country has really been uh, paying attention to what's happening with police departments, Mm -hmm. right? Um, This was after, I I wrote it in the book, in my book, um, after all these incidents. It's the, the ideology with which we currently deploy police in major cities is tantamount to exercising a melanoma with a blowtorch. In neighborhoods where racial bias shapes police response, black people are still being admonished to go slow as they push for change. But how much more slowly could we have gone? When you think about that, you're saying this is a 36, there are 36 ways that they're saying that there should be improvements uh, in the department. Are you going to act quickly? Are you taking your time? When are you going to implement these, Chief? We're already acting, and and we're already in the process of reform. Um, Many of the recommendations within the report um, is highlighting some of the things that we already have uh, pushed forward um, with having our Accountability Improvement Bureau set up, which encompasses our wellness. Uh, We want our officers to be hold. We want them to be mentally, financially, and spiritually well. And so we're on the way with that. Um, We want to make sure that we are hearing the community and by providing them an outlet for them to be able to come and speak with us directly. Um, We're doing just that. So in the report, and you also see that the report did state that we are already making those improvements. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yes, we're not waiting. We're not stopping. We're moving aggressively ahead because let me say this, whether the DOJ was here or not, we should be a premier department. We should be a department that the citizens of Louisville can be proud of. And guess what? For us internally to be proud of ourselves. So, no, we're not waiting. We're moving forward. And as the Department of Justice themselves said, the vast majority of our officers are good and honorable people who are in their public service roles for the right reasons, that are doing their job working to keep everybody safe. And so we're building on that with that team. And our focus on training, uh, the chief has a background in police training, and we are really focused on improving our training immediately. It's going to take months to to get the consent decree in place with the Department of Justice. We are not waiting. I think that's really important, right, to not to... To do it now, 
Thank you both. Good luck, uh, mm -hmm. Chief and Mayor. Appreciate your time this morning. Let's hope Thank other you. police departments around Thank the country so are, are following. Feel the same. Yeah. Absolutely. Caitlin. Really important interview. Also, just a few hours from now, we're going to see President Biden unveil his budget proposal. What's in it? What's getting cut? What lawmakers will and won't agree to? We're going to ask one of them. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is here. He joins us next. All right. And just hours from now, President Biden is going to release his budget proposal for the fiscal year 2024. The White House says that proposal would actually reduce the deficit by about $3 trillion over the next 10 years with tax reforms aimed at the wealthy and large corporations. No surprises there, as well as cuts to wasteful spending on special interests, they say, like big oil and big pharma. I'm quoting the White House there. This has no chance of actually getting passed, no traction it's going to gain in Congress, but it is a statement of priorities as Capitol Hill is gearing up for a pending showdown over the debt ceiling. So to talk with us about that showdown is Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who serves on the Appropriations, Armed Services and Energy and Natural Resources Committee. So very busy. Senator, though, I know we have a lot to talk about, but I want to start with uh, Senator McConnell, who fell yeah. and was hospitalized overnight. Do you know anything about how he's doing? I haven't heard anything at all, but my prayers are with him for a speedy recovery. I hope it's not serious. Uh, and uh, as we know, Mitch is a war horse. He'll be uh, hopefully back uh, in the saddle again and going strong. And we hope to see him back quickly. So yeah. I hope it's uh, not serious. We're all hoping for a speedy recovery as well. We'll continue to track that. Yeah. On President Biden today, releasing this budget blueprint that we are told by the administration is going to have uh, proposed cutting the budget deficit by about $3 trillion over the next decade. From what you've seen so far, do you think it goes far enough? Well, I haven't seen, I haven't seen in detail yet. I've heard uh, tidbits of it. So we'll be getting more briefed uh, today as it comes out and then my staff will break it down. Caitlin, what we have to understand, first of all, in the last 10 years, since 2013, uh, we've added about 17 to $18 trillion of new debt. Some of that was attributable to uh, COVID. But shouldn't we be looking at how we accumulated so much debt so quickly? And both sides are to blame. So if Democrats want to blame Republicans, Republicans want to blame Democrats, this is an American problem we have to fix. And the blame game is not going to fix it. I can't tell you if three trillion's enough, if it's anywhere close to what we, where we need to be, but I can tell you we've accumulated over 17 to 18 trillion, from 13 trillion to 31 and a half trillion as we speak. That breaks down to $94,000 per person in America. For every person in America, children, everybody, that's $94,000. The interest this year, Caitlin, is $600 billion. If we do nothing, which I'm happy to see that the president's changing the trajectory, but if we do nothing, that's $130 trillion by 2015. $130 trillion of debt. $5 trillion a year will be spent towards interest. That is non-attainable whatsoever. We would not be a superpower of the world. We've got to start getting our financial house in order, period. Yeah. And it's going to be tough. Do you want to see Democrats hold firm to their stance of a clean debt ceiling hike with, with no, you know, nothing tied to that? Or do you think they should compromise with Republicans here who are saying that there should be some spending cuts in, ad in addition to that? Well, here, everyone's talking about spending cuts. Can we just see if we can go back to normal? Where were we before COVID? What was our trajectory before that? How much new debt do we accumulate during COVID because of all the subsidies? And is it possible to start going back and just getting back to a normal before you start cutting the bejesus and scaring people to death. That's what gets people uh, all upset. But for Democrats to say, oh, no, we're not going, just, just vote for it clean. Well, that's not going to happen. It's not reasonable. We should be talking about 
during a debt crisis and a debt ceiling, how do we fix it? And we fix it by basically being more disciplined. And we're not there. They're not even getting a budget. The president's budget is about a month late. He's putting a budget out, but it's about a month late. The House and Senate are supposed to have a budget before us on April the 1st and have reconciliation by April the 15th. And then by September the 30th, we're supposed to have a complete budget done. If we do that, that saves billions of dollars if we just do our jobs. So there's so many things that we can do and be disciplined and do our jobs the same as all Americans have to do. Yeah, a lot of missed deadlines, but you're saying that a clean debt ceiling hike is not gonna happen, is that right? No, 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 I'm gonna vote for a clean. Basically, we're paying for the sins of the past. I'm not gonna hold it hostage. I'm not gonna say, well, I'm not gonna vote unless you do this. But to say that we can't sit down and have an agreement, have an agreement that we're going to look at these different types of things and we're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. We're protecting that for the people that basically depend on it for the lifeline. But we're going to look at everything that we possibly can. How come we've increased $3.5 trillion of spending in 2013? How did it get to $6.2 trillion? How'd that happen? Okay. We know about discount the COVID, but how did that happen? And how come we have so much in what we call non-discretionary funding? That means we can't even talk about it, Caitlin. That's mean it's put over there. You're just going to have to continue to fund that. How did it grow so quickly? How do we have so many things that are so necessary that weren't before? Those types of things. And, and we should have that conversation. Well, and we should have an agreement to basically come back in 60 days or 90 days and have things on the table. Then you can vote. But don't hold it hostage. Well, on that front, and you talk about the president being late in releasing his budget blueprint, we don't even know when Republicans are going to release theirs. They have not said what exactly they are going to cut. Is it possible for them to reduce the deficit if they don't touch Social Security, they don't raise taxes, and they don't touch Medicare? Well, you're looking at a long trajectory there. You have to look at everything that's happened. Are we running those programs as efficiently as we can? We're making sure that the people that have worked that have paid into it, that are receiving, are going to continue to. In my state, about 60%, I'm sure in Alabama's about the same, a high percentage of retirees, that's all they have. Mm -hmm. We're going to protect that, but that's been there for about 100 years. Now all of a sudden saying, that's the big bugaboo, that's the one that's killing us all. We know it's expensive, but there's a commitment we have to people to age with dignity. And we're gonna protect that. But there's an awful lot of abuse and waste that goes on throughout the entire system. Again, that, that's not the 4.9 trillion. Everyone thinks like, well, that, that's everything. If you don't do that, you do nothing. That's not true. That is just not true. Senator Mitchin, over the last week, you have announced on Capitol Hill your opposition to three of the president's nominees, including the person he picked to run the IRS. You sharply criticized the Interior Department for delaying a plan for leases for offshore oil and gas. You said you're going to vote with Republicans to rescind that EPA water rule. Obviously, we saw the vote on the D.C. crime bill. What is your relationship with the White House like right now? They know exactly where I'm coming from. I said, don't give me anybody that's a, uh, that's a true advocate or pretty far left. Uh, and if I'd say the same pretty far right, whoever the administration is. Give me people who are more grounded, more centrist, if you will. And if you give me an advocate, that's somebody that's going to be advocating for their position. You cannot put those types of people and try to get good results for uh, official, you know, and, and uh, problem-solving areas and basically oversights, whether it be FCC or whatever. So I've been very clear about that. As far as the gentleman for the IRS, most qualified, he'll do a good job. That was a message I'm sending because the president and his administration is not adhering 
to the piece of legislation called the Inflation Reduction Act. They have touted that as strictly an environmental bill. And I can assure you, we put that together and negotiated after we put it together. No one even knew that my, me and my staff were working on it, Caitlin. Mm -hmm. It was for energy security. My goodness, when you saw Putin do what he did with energy, and you know what's happening to our friends in the EU and Europe and all over, and then basically not being able to produce the energy we have under our feet in our great country, and we're asking other countries such as Iran and Venezuela, the greatest terrorist supporter in the world, Iran, you want them to have more money to create more havoc to humankind? I've just, I was appalled and I said, we gotta do things more and be more secured in our state and our country so that we can help our allies if they start looking elsewhere for energy. Everything they're rolling out is relaxing and, and I've just said, you're trying to basically reconfigure a piece of legislation that we passed, that we passed in, in, uh, in the Congress, uh -huh to something that you want and wasn't in that legislation. So I'm holding their feet to the fire there and I'll send, continue to send every message I can. Please adapt and enforce the legislation for energy security. Yeah, you're certainly sending some messages. When you were recently asked if you're still a Democrat, if you still consider yourself a Democrat, you said, I'm an American. That raised a lot of eyebrows. Let me just be very clear. Everyone knows I'm not a Washington Democrat, that's for sure. And the old Southern Democrats, where I come from, and my grandparents and all that, they were responsible, accountable, they worked hard, they helped people, they expected people to get up off the rear end and work and contribute to this great country. But I have a lot of great friends who aren't Washington Republicans either. The system in, 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 in the political system in America is broke. It truly is. And in Washington, we're not giving you a choice to ponder. That makes sense. Yeah, we should be doing something like that. We're pushing you to the extreme left or right. You might not like either position that you're pushed to, but you have no other options. I want that sensible, reasonable, responsible middle to have a voice. I'm going to be speaking for that as loudly as I can. Well, given that, do you think, you know, you were asked recently if you would endorse Biden for his reelection run that he's expected to announce. You declined to do so. Do you think he should be challenged for the 2024 nomination? I'm not going to be involved in any making decisions, but definitely on my own decisions as far as politics or my political posturing whatever it would be or what my political future might be until the end of the year. When you have a border crisis that we have, when you have an energy crisis that we will have if we don't become energy secured, you've got high inflation, you've got all the things you just identified and you all do so, I think, so aptly and, and so accurately on your, on your network. When you're identifying all of those and we're worried about the next election, only in America does the next cycle start the day after the last cycle? This is crazy. Let's do our job at least for another year. We have a whole nother year after that. That's fair, but you know that answer is gonna make some people think that you're thinking about getting into the presidential race. Hold on, I've said this and I will repeat this one more time, Caitlin. I am not making any decisions whatsoever on what my political future may be until the end of the year. All right, Senator Manchin, thank you for your time this morning. We will be checking back in with you at the end of the year. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks, Caitlin. It's always good to be with you. Thank Great you job. so much. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. And we'll be right back after this. Well, we know Rihanna. There she is. Brought the house down with her Super Bowl performance this year, and she inspired some surprising fans to recreate it. Here it is. Come 
Oh, this is a group of women at the Arcadia Senior Living in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and they absolutely nailed it. I mean, come on, you gotta love it. They're, oh they're loving God. life. Rihanna and Jay-Z love their performance so much that they sent 100 roses to the ladies. That's pretty awesome. Okay, that's amazing. <laughs> I can't even do that. <laughs> Bye, y'all. The, the outfits, too. <laughs> they were great. I love them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that note, on that note, CNN Newsroom is after this. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.